Hi there, listeners. Welcome to episode number three of the Aerospace Engineering Podcast. If you enjoy these conversations, I have a favor to ask. Will you leave us a review on iTunes? The fact is that your reviews really help us to reach more listeners, and the broader the audience, the easier it is for me to host the most inspiring engineers on the show. Thanks to all of you in advance for leaving those reviews. We'll start our show in a moment, but first, a word from our sponsor, the Society for the Advancement of Material and Process Engineering, also known as SAMPI. SAMPI is a global professional society that has been providing educational opportunities on advanced materials for more than 70 years. SAMPI's network of engineers is a key facilitator for the advancement of aerospace engineering by enabling information exchange and synergies between aerospace companies. To find out how SAMPI can help you learn more about advanced materials and processes, visit SAMPI's website at nasampe.org or consider attending the SAMPI 2018 Technical Conference and Expo in Long Beach, California. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Three, two, one, zero, all engine running. Liftoff, we have a liftoff, 32 minutes past the hour, liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here, the Eagle has landed. Hello and welcome to the Airspace Engineering Podcast, where I interview pioneers from across the aerospace industry to highlight engineering success stories from the past and discuss exciting new technologies for the future. Today I'm talking to Ian Lane, who's the Senior Expert and Composite Analysis for Airbus UK. Ian has more than 40 years of experience in the aerospace industry and has worked on a number of different flying vehicles, ranging from hovercrafts to helicopters and big passenger aircraft. Since November 2000, Ian has been at the forefront of Airbus's gradual transition from metal to composite airframes, and he was a leading engineer in the development of the A400M military turboprop aircraft, and most recently, the Airbus A350. On top of that, Ian is a visiting professor in aerospace engineering at the University of Bristol, and as you will hear in this conversation, he's a great example of an industry leader who knows how to inspire the next generation of young engineers and also prides himself on fostering strong collaborative links between industry and academia. In this conversation, Ian shares many fascinating stories from his long career and leaves us with an inspirational vision of what he hopes the next generation of aerospace engineers will achieve. As always, show notes are available at airspaceengineeringblog.com forward slash podcast. And now without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Airbus senior expert, Ian Lane. Right, Ian, um, it's great to be here. It, uh, it's a pleasure for me to talk to you today. Uh, it's Airbus UK in Filton, um, and I'd just like to give you a warm welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ryan. That's cool. Um, so you're currently a senior expert in composite analysis for Airbus UK, but before we talk about your particular role today, I'd just like to ask you a question about your pro uh, career progression and sure. some of the uh, the way stations that you've taken on the way between between finishing school and now now working for, for Airbus. Okay, cool. Well, I was, um, I was born in 1960, which seems quite a while ago, really. That's kind of <laughs> nine years before the Apollo landings and really not that many years after the Wright brothers managed to coax their way into the air, into the air with their wooden aeroplane and homemade engine. So I guess I started off in 1977, September the 5th to be precise, which is oh, wow. 40 years ago yeah. this year as a technical apprentice at what was then called the British Hovercraft Corporation, which on the Isle of Wight, mm -hmm. the south coast of England, 
that was a division of, of Westland Aircraft at the time, which is the Westland Helicopter Company, which will re-emerge later in the story. Mm-hmm. And I started off at age 16 as a technical apprentice, straight from what were then my O-levels at school, which I think now GCSE GCSEs, would yeah. be the UK UK equivalent. And I spent two two years going back and forwards to a local technical college where I did a an ordinary national diploma in engineering as it was called which was not an English A-level qualification it was an engineering focused qualification Mm -hmm. luckily I got good enough marks that the the British Hovercraft Company decided that I could do well enough to go to university so I was able to go to what is now the University of Portsmouth but was the Portsmouth Polytechnic back at the time when I went so I graduated in 83 but taking a really interesting kind of course content because you do six months at university six months back at work for three years and then the final tranche was nine months back like a full-time year okay so when you when i graduated in 83 i had like not just a degree but an awful lot of experience as well from being inside the so company it's like a dual program basically where you're yeah. doing a talk component and then half of the year you're yeah. also doing experience it was oh. what was called the the thin sandwich like you've got you know the slices of academia with the slices of industry and it's more like a club sandwich which is really good with the multi-layers so it it taught me the um the 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 benefit of having time out in industry because admittedly i I had a lot of practical experience i think when i graduated that that kind of showed a bit maybe compared to somebody who Mm -hmm. perhaps studied full-time who hadn't actually been embedded in industry so that that was that was pretty cool I graduated from from Portsmouth in 1983, went to the stress office at, at British Hovercraft and stayed there for another four years, actually doing detailed calculations, like you wouldn't believe, <laughs> very detailed calculations. And, All by hand, I presume. Yeah, yes. that's it. And and building building like early finite element models as well, because we were still using Nastran, the, the finite element solver at that time, although yeah. the pre- and post-processing equipment was more more difficult to visualize right uh, there was not so much in the way of graphical interfaces and about that time i started to use like the first desktop computers the sort of large apples that were available at the time so things that we take for granted now we were doing a lot more hand calculations and, and not such computer-based stuff but i, I left um westerns on the island in around mid 80s due to during a period that was called the Sikorsky crisis, which was an old historical, look that one up, listeners. Okay, the Sikorsky crisis. The Sikorsky crisis. Okay. It was a, it was a sort of a, a period where the UK government was going to buy Black Hawk helicopters, or wasn't it? And we were going to make them, and the deal kind of like got debated and fell through. And um, and so I end, I ended up thinking, right, okay, being the youngest guy in the office, I think I'll go and find another job. <laughs> As it turned out, they didn't make anybody redundant in my office, so I could have stayed, but I decided to, to leave. And I went off and studied contracting, which was a bit of a bit of a surprise to me because I didn't realise I was doing it. I was quite naive and thought I was applying for a permanent job. It turned out I was applying for a contract job somewhere. And I worked for pretty much around the, around the UK on, on aerospace projects, um, on fixed-wing aircraft, rotary-wing helicopters, Engines, gas turbines, interiors. But this was still for of, Westland, basically. No, this was working for for various contract for agencies, various contractors, yeah, okay. including like refitting a, a seven two seven as a personal like Arab Prince transport, uh-huh. which is a beautiful aeroplane to work on, and especially when you've got a real classy interior to put in it. That was that was a real that was a real cool job. 
and yeah, then I I came back to uh, the middle middle of middle of the eighties. I started working again as as a contractor. Ended up doing a lot of work for what was then British Aerospace Airbus mm-hmm. at the time here at Filton, and then summer of ninety three, I kind of had a choice between a permanent job here and a, and a permanent job with Western Helicopters down in Yeovil. So I decided to go back rotary winging again. Mm-hmm. And spent the rest of the '90s down in Yeovil, where working on the H101 program, which was uh, a, re- a really exciting program to be involved with. I actually ended up as deputy chief structural engineer, which was kind of a cool job, even though it was a, <laughs> it was kind of quite a difficult job. But it certainly so taught did, me a were lot. Were you do the were you doing the structures of the entire? Uh, flight vehicle, was, or it, mostly just the the rotor blades, or was it the entire? I, I was an airframe thing? guy. You were an airframe guy. I worked guy. on the um the, the what was the UK workshare, which was the the main the main cabin and the main lifting airframe, mm-hmm. and um and the forward forward fuselage, main centre part. The the aft part was done in um in in by Italian partners in Augusta because of that so that was my first real introduction to working on a multinational basis, mm-hmm. which was fascinating, and I. Learned to speak Italian and spent a lot of time in Cascina Costa near Milan, and getting to know some really really cool people over there, and also appreciating the kind of the different approaches that say a, a traditional English engineer might take as opposed to a, a, a traditional Italian engineer, and, and kind of melding all that together to make a really cool cool flying machine. And then after by the end of 2000 I, I got middle of 2000 I got a phone call from my old colleagues at Filton because in the early part of the 90s I've been working as part of the team of the very the start of the composite wing program at Filton this is the early 1990s mm-hmm. this was you know to look in at building civil aircraft wings out of out of non-metallic materials so I got a phone call saying you know there was a program starting at, at Filton called the Tango Wingbox project which mm-hmm. was an EU funded research demonstrator and one thing led to another, and I came back in November 2000, and that was quite a few years ago now. Yeah. <laughs> so, and since then, I, I kind of worked on Tango Research Project. That morphed the team in that into the A400M Composite Wing Program, and that led us into the A350 Composite Wing Program, and I had the joy of being Chief Stress Engineer on, on both those programs for a while. Really good teams of people, and um, now I'm working on... Guess what? A composite wing of tomorrow. Yeah, you so, are. Yeah. <laughs> so, so just a follow-up question on the, on on the helicopters. I w- I was um, not an apprentice, but in an internship back at, at Eurocopter when it was still Eurocopter, mm. not Airbus helicopters. And at that time, this was around two thousand nine. There were, I think, the helicopter, at least the the airframe, was almost a hundred percent composite at the time. Mm. So back when you were at Augusta, was it mostly composite already? And was that then the job that set you up for? for Tango working on, on composite wings or where was the helicopter industry still on in kind of uh, the, I the, think the metal? You, you pick the material to suit your machine and a lot of the time you, you will you will select a material choice that you, you're faced with three or four choices mm-hmm. and you have to make a decision that's best for your flight vehicle that fits with the economics, fits with the performance of the machine and also fits within the, the development timescales you have for that machine. The... Um, Things like NH90 Tiger helicopters from mm-hmm. the old yeah. Eurocopter, now yeah. Airbus helicopters, were very committed from early stage on to fully composite airframes. The H101 program had aluminium lithium mm-hmm. airframe, extensive use of a material which gave you straight away a 10 to 12% weight saving, but also a 
an enhancement in fatigue performance. So again, when you design kind of medium lift helicopters, you might come up with a, which the H101 fits in that category, that you may come up with a different decision than if you're designing, say, an attack helicopter or, or a lighter transport helicopter. So the rotor blades, yeah, because the composite rotor blades have been around for, a, for for quite a while since the 1960s, so that yeah. was always a good choice for the for the major you know, dynamic components for the, the rotary wing. I mean, back end of the H101 and the say the tail cone area was entirely composite, forward fuselage, lots of Kevlar and carbon, yeah. very good impact resistance. Yeah. So again, you pick the materials to suit the economics of what you need to do in the performance of your aircraft, which is one of the reasons when people say to me, well, why are, why are fixed-wing aircraft, you know, now Bay 350, for example, is 53% non-metallic materials. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a big step up from the less than 5% on the original A300, A310 aircraft. And if you look at the history of Airbus aircraft since the company was formed back in, in, in the 70s when it came together, that the percentage increase has been a very gradual process. It's not something we certainly leap to and say, this is fashionable, let's do it, which is something I kind of mistakenly read in quite a few student presentations is they predict much, much, much more use of composites than, than than say we are, we we might plan to do. Mm -hmm. And you use the materials to suit the missions that you have and you introduce it on on an incremental basis on, on say single aisle aircraft, 320 family, Horizontal tailplane, vertical tailplane, were composite. We still have metal wings, metal fuselage. But on A350, for example, the the decision is really one for performance. You get get a massive weight saving if you use composite structures in 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 an intelligent way. Plus, you eliminate a lot of the tasks that are related to the maintenance of the aircraft, particularly with fatigue behavior on the airframe, but also maintenance and corrosion inspection duties, which when you think of a fuselage, any fluid in the fuselage that finds its way into the fuselage will collect in the bilges, the lower part of the fuselage, and in a metallic structure that can cause corrosion to occur. Mm -hmm. So having a a composite structure, that task is eliminated to look for and inspect and repair. But we always say that it's always been said in Airbus and I've always said everywhere else I've been that you have to the materials you pick buy their way onto your program. If there's no benefit mm-hmm. in doing something, you don't do it. Yeah. Yep. So I, I talked to, to Professor Paul Weaver about four weeks ago, actually about the EH-101, and we were talking about the bend, bend twist coupling mm-hmm. on the on the rotor blades. And then I guess this is one example where the composites provided a benefit, a direct benefit to the helicopter, and that's probably one of the reasons why it, it found its way onto the, onto, yeah. onto the helicopter. So in this case, you, you talked about some performance benefits of composites for the a- Airbus A350. And I guess that the percentage has been increasing very gradually and incrementally over the years. So what were, apart from performance drivers, what were what are the main incentives for, or what were the main incentives for Airbus to take this rather maybe bigger shift from going maybe from a, a metal-dominated aircraft to a composite-dominated aircraft? Is it mainly that the aircraft is lighter and so the fuel efficiency is lower, which is great for the airlines, or what were kind of the the competing drivers that that Airbus had to kind of... It's performance. It's performance. Performance, because delivering performance to the customers, you can get extra range for less weight 
yeah, minimising the weight of airframes is, is is being a stress engineer all of my career. Is that's that's always been the, the the primary driver. But you have to do it in a responsible way. We can't, for instance, say strip fifteen percent out of an airframe, but do it in a way which has a massive environmental detriment. Right. And but we have we are committed to things like Akari fuel burn reduction targets, CO2 and NO2 emission targets. This is like the Clean Sky Initiative, for example. The 2050 to hit reduction targets, emission targets that are 50% of what the world's airline Mm -hmm. fleet was pushing out in 2010. Mm -hmm. And we have to do that with a massive fleet increase and get to half that level. So that, in anybody's calculation, is is a really big environmental commitment, which... You can only rely so much on aerodynamics and alternative fuels. You've got to get weight out of the airframe, mm-hmm. and that means use being more intelligent in, in how you optimize the airframe and making use of the directional behavior of, of composite materials mm-hmm. and structures you can build out of them it is a key part of that. So you're basically saying that the, the composites allow you to build some form of structure or structures for, for aircraft that perhaps you, you couldn't do with metals. And they can behave differently as they well. As you said about the the fact that you can build a structure that when you talked about helicopter rotor blade, that's quite a long, slender device, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's, it's much much less deep than, say, the wing of a, a big civil aircraft. Mm-hmm. We're, we're talking about, in, in a civil aircraft, a, a sort of a depth of wing, which is probably, you know, you on A380, for instance, you can stand up inside the wing route. Right. You know, it's quite, oh, a, wow, quite, it's quite a, a lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. On a 320 wing tip, you can probably get your head and shoulders in between the between the, the, the upper and lower cover. They're quite deep compared to a helicopter rotor blade, mm-hmm. but the challenge is, is, of course, quite different. That rotor blade is spinning round at 17.5 to 18 times a second. Yeah. It's got... It is the wing of the helicopter, and it has to avoid going supersonic at the tip, because otherwise lift is totally lost. Don't want to enter the transonic zone too much. So you, you, the stiffness tailoring of it is this ability to, to get it to deform to certain shapes under certain loads is something that you can really only realistically achieve with a composite material where you lay the material in specific directions in a specific stacking sequence. Mm-hmm. With an isotropic material such as aluminium, where it's got the same properties in every direction, that doesn't allow you to tailor mm-hmm. that. And this, the same is true of, of, of a lifting surface on a, on a on a big civil aircraft. I think we, when I say say to people, yeah, you know, why why do you extrapolate and say, oh, will there ever be a fully composite aircraft? Yeah, I guess this is the question. Is, now. We're at fifty three percent. I think is, you said there will be sensible combinations and right. and. Any, any major company constructor is, is going to reserve the right to say, we're going to use the right material in the right place. Mm-hmm. The key thing is to have the maturity and experience to be able to make those judgments and, and not use, say, a, a composite construction in a place where a titanium alloy will work perfectly because you have a really high load input, say, like an engine attachment or a landing gear attachment. Yeah. So where you need really discrete reinforcing then metallic solutions you know will will generally sort of you know come up with a better so a better a better solution right so i guess so as the senior expert in composite analysis as as i just said we're at i think around 53 percent composites now do you think that 
it will that percentage will go even higher or maybe our metals maybe you know i mean the metal industry isn't sleeping right they're yeah, creating more exactly. and more <laughs> you know more yeah. you know lighter and stronger metallic alloys so that, where is the kind of like yeah. balance between between I think metals that's part and of the challenge i mean it's it's as you say that the the metallic materials industry did not just pack up go home and go to bed when when composite materials appeared so there's always going to be the development of you know new new fiber patterns new resin formulations on composite new alloying elements and more specifically tailored alloys for specific uses in, in the metallic industry plus of course you have the evolution in the last 10 years of, of additive layer manufacturing what I don't like to call it 3D printing mm -hmm. because that kind of sounds like it diminishes a little bit the what you can do with it. You know, additive manufacturing with both directional and non-directional materials potentially. I mean, you can build structures that and design structures that you couldn't conceive of before because if you're trying to machine a big block of aluminium out to a certain shape, the the cutter sizes you need to get in, the paths the cutters take, the three, four, five, six axis, maybe machines that you can conceive to do that cutting will still limit you physically in what you can make. But if you're building the structure up layer by layer, you can conceive much more what are called topologically optimized structures where you only place the material where you really need it. Mm -hmm. Now that produces a lot of challenges in itself. How do you make sure those structures are as safe as what you had before. Because what I didn't mention in, in the shift to, to composite materials on big civil aircraft is that one of the biggest overriding factors that we have to maintain is the equivalent level of safety with existing metallic aircraft. Because we work very, very closely with the aviation authorities to ensure that what we produce is as safe or safer than what we have produced. Mm -hmm. So we're making composite aircraft that have to build 53% composite content aircraft that have to be as safe as, as an aircraft with, say, 5% of composite. So building up that knowledge, confidence, and demonstration to get the type certificate for the aircraft it, it is a key part. So with additive manufacturing, we will have to do similar things. You know, we, have to, we can't just produce structures that look cool. They've got to be as safe. So, and I guess so. In the I mean, the aerospace industry. I was I was recently at a conference, and we were talking about ways of increasing uh, the level, the, the uh, percentage of composites in all sorts of different industries. And one of the topics that we talked about was the famous certification or testing pyramid that we have in aerospace. So, was that one? Is that pyramid enough to go to to kind of overcome these challenges of maintaining safety, or were were Absolutely. there or are there it other is, yeah. challenges that <laughs> are there procedural changes that you needed to go, let's say, from metal to, to composite or or ink or having additive manufacturing? Certainly, parts. The, the the pyramid of testing is the robust approach, building up thousands and thousands and thousands of of data points at an elementary level, at a coupon level at the bottom of the period, building up. The full-scale testing at the top but what has also happened in, in the last you know 20 years is the development of virtual testing to go with that so that you can begin to calibrate your virtual testing which is done through simulation and mathematical modeling to the physical tests so that you can then inform your design decisions a lot earlier 
because if you can only build one physical test specimen when you get to say a whole wing test or a whole aircraft test so if you explore the envelope a little bit and break it then you've kind of broken it yeah whereas if you can wouldn't it be great if during design you could construct as many of those specimens as you wanted and begin to explore where the safe plateaus are uh, of changes in the design without flipping from one failure mode to another with, with, with great severity, great speed and severity. So certainly the, the evolution of virtual testing is something which is going to play a part in the future. But what, one thing that we'll be absolutely sure is that the equivalent level of safety will not change. Right. And perimeter testing has been, true, has been one of the big cornerstones of, of actually maintaining that. As it, we don't make this stuff up on a Friday and then fly it on a Monday. There's a, there's a monstrously, you know, comprehensive um, process to follow and an inventive procedure between the two. And that, that may sound very flippant, but I think when people look back at the history of aviation, they, they maybe tend to maybe see a little bit more of the kind of instantaneous invention than perhaps actually happened. Yeah. And I think the even the Wright brothers kind of worked on their development for a number of years mm -hmm. before that beautiful moment in December 1903 where they kind of changed the world forever. And I think people tend to look at the iconic people and tend to see the individuality of invention that in reality there's a team of people there. There's right. always been a team of people. And that cooperation, if you like, having more than one person working on things gives you the, the ability to question and check yep. and check and question. It's been a cornerstone of aviation safety. The people did say to me once how, when I worked on helicopters, how, how do helicopters fly? And I always had three answers, really. Well, if they looked like they were a little bit technically interested, I'd try and explain how a, the, the aerodynamics of a helicopter works and how the airframe mm -hmm. held together and the kind of things you could do with a helicopter and what its limitations might be compared to a fixed-wing aircraft and vice versa. Then if um, if I didn't really like the person, which doesn't happen that often, and or I thought they were being a bit obnoxious, I, I'd say, well, it's kind of magic, really. It's, <laughs> or, you know, it's, it's all kind of a bit of a flippant answer, but some, sometimes <laughs> it, it works. But the third answer I always give was that actually it's teamwork that makes any flying machine fly. And there isn't one person who designs an entire machine itself. And I mean, there are some real characters. I mean, people like Bert Rutan, for mm -hmm. instance, is like incredibly, right. you know, incredibly inspiring Scaled guy. Composites, I yeah. think, yeah, yeah. I mean, you look at that guy and you, and you kind of think, well, yeah, he's got a whole team of people with him. But when, one, when there's a real character, you tend to project onto that because we have this hero culture in the world yeah. where people say, oh, that's, that was the leader at the time. Yeah. Yeah, there's a whole team of people with. I guess with it's similar with Elon Musk, perhaps with SpaceX at the moment. Maybe, maybe a, a similar thing. But I, a, I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Some of the in terms of the the aircraft safety. Someone recently said to me that if we look at the the time to cross the Atlantic, we've actually gone backwards, and that you know the Concorde existed at some point, and now it's actually taken us longer to to, to cross the Atlantic, and we've kind of taken a step back. And the allegation was basically, oh, the aircraft industry is way too conservative. It doesn't allow for these big, big, you know, sh shape-shifting changes. What is your response to that? Is it basically, well, lo look at the, the safety that we have today. You know, we have millions of flights without a single technical glitch or, or anybody, you know, 
losing their life in one of these flights. Is that basically the answer to, to that allegation, or well, is there any is there a structural reason? I don't actually accept the allegation in the sense that. I mean, I'm a stress engineer, and people say, oh, you stress engineers are always too conservative. Well, we're kind of glad about that because that's what makes aeroplanes safe, okay? Absolutely. So when you're you're developing a method, say an analysis method for a new type of structure, you don't want it to work sometimes. You want it to work all the time. Mm -hmm. Plus, we have an ultimate factor that is dictated by by the the aviation regulations applicable to, to, to the type of aircraft we build, which is that whatever the highest load the aircraft will see at one point during its 30-year life, we multiply it by 50%. Mm -hmm. Now, if we're being conservative, I think when you look at things like the nuclear industry, you see that factor is something like 10 times at least. Mm -hmm. So the the challenge in aviation is to, if you have too big uh, an ultimate factor, you you will build an aeroplane that won't actually fly because it will be too heavy. Yeah. And if you do manage to do it with, with a bigger factor, it may not have a profitable mission range right. you know, or, or payload. So the, the ultimate factor is something which has pretty much ensured the safety you know, of, of, of airframe safety for, for numerous years now. And I don't see that that is going gonna, is gonna to decline. Equivalent level of safety will always be there. So I don't accept that we're being no. conservative. Mm-hmm. I think the reason why Concorde doesn't still fly across the Atlantic, unfortunately, I mean, obviously that's a decision for the the airline operators, the Air France and British Airways. It was, I think, the decision was made on economic grounds, and you have to respect that with the business. So we, Concorde is incredibly iconic, but even then, that's a story in itself. We've just put the last flying Concorde into a museum, which is just over the runway from the building we're talking in, mm-hmm. and. The the public are fascinated by it as well. It's the last flying Concorde, the last one ever yeah. to fly, and it landed on the runway here at Filton, and now we have it in the museum. But in the late sixties, that that was the dream that aircraft. So I wouldn't say we've gone backwards because we learnt so much from that aircraft and the generation of people who worked on it. Maybe there will be more supersonic transports in the future, but. The world of aviation has, has exploded since, in, in terms of size and destinations since the 1960s. And if there is a business model that requires a supersonic aircraft, then potentially that is a, that is a market that can be addressed. Right. So perhaps it's more, it's not an engineering challenge per se, it's very much an economic challenge. And those two factors have to interact. I think in it's still an engineering challenge. It's also that they, you've got to be able to make a flight vehicle that people are going to be able to operate and, and make money out of. Right. Because that that's when I to to the to the aircraft I sort of point out to, to my students at the at the University of Bristol in the first year is is the first was it the the D C three, Douglas D C three and the Boeing seven oh seven. Now these were the the first two First one, DC three, was the first aircraft that, in theory, you could buy and operate an airline mm-hmm. and make money out of. Yep. Now, probably there'd be some aviation historians out there who would who would argue that no, actually it was well, maybe Boeing two four seven or yeah. or another yeah. or a different type of aircraft. But the the point I'm trying to make with that aircraft is at some point in the 1930s, aviation became so safe 
and understood in, in terms of metal aircraft that you could buy an aircraft without having to design it yourself. You could right. buy an aircraft, operate it, and, and you had like airlines being Yeah, so airlines became feasible, basically. That became yeah. companies, not state-sponsored state and subsidized entities. Yeah. Same with the, the advent of, uh, of jet aircraft in the 1950s. Now, if it, if the, the de Havilland Comet was, of course, the first aircraft that could have been mm -hmm. the first profitable mm -hmm. aircraft, but due to the, the issues it had with... Um, Windows. Fatigue safety around around the windows. That that's kind of a, a, a sad story, but it's still an inspiring airframe. And the seven oh seven came in and and really you know took took that place. But this was a jet aircraft you could buy and operate for a profit. Right. And since that point, virtually every civil aircraft out there has been aircraft you can buy and operate and make money out of. And that that is the key thing to remember. We're not. The, the, the operator, if the operators don't make money out of our aircraft, we wouldn't actually sell any aircraft. Right. Yeah. So it's kind of an important thing. It's different with military aircraft and, and mission-specific um, items like helicopters and you know, sort of combat vehicles because they're, they're, they have a specific mission which with the, the economics argument doesn't, yeah. doesn't necessarily yeah. apply. No, I mean, that's yeah, absolutely fascinating, especially as an academic, I tend to overlook probably the business side of things. But yeah. Um, uh, don't, don't hit yourself too hard. It's teamwork. Yeah, it's teamwork. That's right. We've all got yeah. different things to think about. Yeah. So shifting gears a little bit, I know that you're involved with the Airbus Flyer Ideas mm. program. So I, I just wanted to know, maybe especially for younger listeners, what is Airbus Flyer Ideas about? What, what is What are you trying to achieve with Airbus Flyer Ideas? The Flyer Ideas campaign is something that Airbus has run. I think we've run five five editions of it now. It's every four or five editions now. Every two years, it's an open competition that's mainly pitched towards um, undergraduate students where we invite either on a issue a series of topics or themes or ideas, not ideas specifically, but topics we'd like people to maybe be imagination, exercise their imagination about. And... Uh, we challenged the teams to come together in in groups of you know three to five six students together, and develop an idea, pitch it towards us in, in an open competition. The um, we down select in the December of the year where we have the competition down to the final one hundred, and then we have a, a, a round two where we get down to the final five who come on to an Airbus plant and have to pitch to a pretty nice. pretty cool audience of judges. They get to develop their idea. This The competition we ran this year actually had the, the five student teams that got into the final spent a week in what we call our proto space, mm -hmm. one of the facilities in, um, in that are on various Airbus sites, but they went to the proto space in, in Toulouse, the, the, main Air, well, the main Airbus headquarters, and um, they got to develop physically their idea mm -hmm. Into, into physical mock-ups, develop software, those sorts of applications. So what we look for there is, is, is not just the idea, but the enthusiasm and passion of the students who are doing it. They're totally uninhibited by some of the, the, the experiences that some of our older engineers may have had, where you begin to think, oh, that, that might not work. And they just go for it. Right, they, yeah. They're total tonic. For, for for us and that's why I, lo I love to get involved and, and why we have never have any shortage of 
volunteers to, to assess the ideas and get involved in that competition because it's so refreshing when you see people who are totally inspired that they want to do something different and they some of the I, I would probably say that the, the in the years we've been running the competition the standard of like the pitching of the ideas has, has really increased exponentially mm-hmm. a lot along with the quality of the ideas and the imagination that's involved there because what we're what we're saying to to the students there really is this this is a big world-class imagining company mm-hmm. come and imagine with us and it's an absolute pleasure to take part in that yeah that sounds fascinating yeah and i guess so, so when volunteers you... please watch volunteers, out for the next yeah, one please, yeah please everybody i guess so <laughs> this is if you google airbus flyer ideas you'll mm. probably find find the site straight yeah. away and so when when you're at these at these competitions i know that you go to a lot of academic conferences and that's basically where we, we initially met what do you do you, do you typically look for these kind of you know maybe entirely blue sky ideas where there are people as you said that haven't maybe you know had the reality of working in industry and they're just coming up with the big next moonshot or are you looking for specific solutions perhaps to problems that you're facing as a company right now i think it covers a whole all of that spectrum right all of the above plus more <laughs> plus think, more. <laughs> yeah. it's when when for instance the the conference where we that we were three years ago mm-hmm. was it iccs 18 the international conference on composite structures yes I was I was really lucky that that myself and one of my colleagues Lauren Reese we were invited to do the opening plenary presentation. So we got all like eight hundred and fifty plus delegates mm-hmm. in one auditorium, and we're there doing a presentation on how some work that started off in a lab found its way onto the A three fifty airframe and how it helped us with 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 the performance capability of that aircraft. Now, what we were trying to do in that presentation was to show, look, this isn't deeply mysterious stuff that we do. What we do is we take good science and we turn it into practical engineering and we turn it into practical airframes that, that people can make money out of operating mm-hmm. and we can make money out of selling. Right. So the what we're trying to do there is to reach out to maybe you know a first year phd student or or a latter year undergraduate or even a seasoned researcher and academic and say look look for a linkage whatever you're doing whatever your field of expertise is or whatever ideas you're having think about the issues we have to address how do we get weight out of an aircraft how do we get better performance out of an aircraft how do we get better economics out of making designer materials say you know like multifunctional composites or something and and think about how you can see a union between the continuum of, of what you're doing and what we need reach out to those people and, and if 10 people went out of that auditorium going i can see how what i'm doing links to something you might be able to use then that's 10 more people than at the start mm-hmm. so those links begin to come together i think it also going to those conferences also enables people to come and talk to us personally we're not these deeply mysterious industry people and we said you're not deeply mysterious academics we get a network we talk to each other we have ideas i met some fascinating people at that at that conference including yourself of course right <laughs> Thank yeah you very much. and never we had worked together before that yeah yeah and i think there's also the we we do go looking for ideas you know we, we go there and we kind of look through the themes and say well what is it of its interest to us is somebody working on a specific type of material science are they looking at a way in which they 
they're doing some incredibly low computation analysis or something, mm-hmm. something which offers an attraction to us, which they may not see, but we might be able to piece together in partnership with them. So again, we're, we're spotting not just talented people, but cool ideas, the institutes they're working for, the univer- very relevant universities. We can set up networks and begin to explore working together. Because certainly to get research funding, you've got to, from a public body, mm-hmm. wherever you are in the world, unless you're doing really blue sky stuff, yeah. you've really got to show an industrial input, you know, an, an end use effect. You know, say on, on the economy of say Europe, United States, East Asia or, or, or the UK, for yeah. example. So we're trying to encourage people to look for, look to industrial, in, industrial, pro, not pro, I don't like the word problem, Questions that need answering, because right. problems tend to imply that something's gone wrong. Mm-hmm. No, a problem is actually something that we'd like to do, but actually we kind of can't work out the technology. We need partners to be able to do that. Yeah. Although I, I think there's also, we do look for incredibly talented people, because you know what it's like at these kind of conferences. Every now and again, somebody stands up and you think that person is just brilliant. Mm-hmm. We have to employ that person. Right. That is the most switched-on scientist I've, I've, an engineer I've ever seen. Please come and work for us now. Yeah, you know, it's it's kind of a little bit. No. I mean, that's really encouraging to hear as well because I guess we are, to some degree, at least academics, are in the kind of the business of ideas, right? And so when you bounce off ideas and you interact with industry, I think essentially both both partners basically benefit, at least ideally, that's what you would want. But yeah, so in, in terms of increasing, let's say, the, the, the potential pool of good ideas or, or perspectives mm-hmm. for, for, for solving engineering challenges, I saw recently on your Twitter feed that you were at the first engineers, Equal Engineers Careers Fair, which is a fair that uh, targets underrepresented groups in engineering, especially female, ethnic minority, LGBT plus, and disabled students. And so my question is, what are your thoughts in general on increasing the proportion of, uh, of underrepresented communities, maybe in engineering, but also perhaps in the STEM fields in general? And if does Airbus have a policy on diversity? We, we are absolutely committed as a company to broadening inclusion and diversity, because if you don't include... You can't be diverse. I, 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 I'm very passionate personally about the fact that you, you, you do not get the best out of everybody and, and yourself by, by recruiting people in the same mould as everybody else. Mm. And everybody absolutely has the right, no matter what, what their race, gender, background, ability, to, to be the best person they can possibly be. And that, that is so deeply in, 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 instilled in me that I, I project it in, into where we are in the company. And I am very, very fortunate that I work for a company that not only embraces that, but actively encourages that, mm-hmm. that, that debate. Certainly the work that I do as part of the, um, the Pride Airbus community, which is the, the LGBT plus community in Airbus, is, is an incredibly liberating experience because you, you cannot, if you cannot be yourself, then you're going to come to work and, and kind of, are you really putting yeah. the best? Are you putting your best into it? Are you really enjoying it? And and I think everybody has a fundamental right to to come forward and and be and be be totally delivering the the the, the best they possibly can. And we have to we have to have an environment that encourages that. Mm. And I would say that we're I really do get quite 
animated when I really look forward to the day when we have a 50-50 gender balance yeah. in engineering. I really would say to any any young female engineers out there, please, please do it. Yeah. So I, I am so I've heard so many stories in the past of people saying that I didn't realise I really like maths, I really like science. I didn't realise I could have a career in engineering until I decided to do something else. And I have a friend who who did a she went to an all girls school. I'm, I'm not saying this is this is necessarily a bad thing, but she went to an all girls school. Really fell in love with mathematics. Did a degree in mathematics, and it wasn't until she finished her degree that she actually realised she could use her love of mathematics in engineering. In engineering. Yeah. And somehow the all the way through her education, the, the the links hadn't been made. So I think it's really important that that people go out and talk about STEM subjects and and make science and engineering absolutely as cool as it is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, am I allowed to plug the Lego Women of NASA set on here? Please do, okay. absolutely. That is one of the coolest pieces of, Le- pieces of Lego I've seen in a long time. <laughs> uh, but it's a beautifully iconic way of constructing people, uh, of communicating with people, constructing this, this, this Lego, Lego ladies of NASA is just brilliant. Yeah, okay? yeah. A friend of mine had the idea that maybe we should print like Airbus on the side of Lego bricks and just throw them over the walls of right. kindergartens nice. just to get yeah. people building stuff. Yeah. So I think we we are we are absolutely committed to that. And you know, being big, you can't be diverse without being inclusive. Yeah. And you sh- if you shut out you know, anybody who's who's got the ability, then then what does that say about you as a as a company? It's totally wrong. So. Please, everybody, step up and be cool engineers. Because being an engineer is probably why well, I've been doing it for forty years, and right. I find it. I still find it exciting. No, it's absolutely so, exciting. And I learn stuff every day. Yeah. No, and I think the the percentage. I guess this is the, the statistic. I think that comes to mind. I think we are currently at ten percent women in engineering, and as you say, we should be targeting you no know, parity, fifty fifty. And uh, to a large degree, I feel like a lot of the time. Engineers are very good at, let's say, going back to problem solving, but not very good at telling stories. And to a lot of degree, a lot of ways, engineering, what you think of is perhaps hard hats and construction sites, and not about the high tech, you know, reality that we really live with. And so perhaps the story that we need to be telling to young girls in, in schools is that engineering is really, you know, it's a rewarding career and it's a, an absolutely, uh, you know, fantastic career. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, I think people have, it, there is an image thing. People talk about engineering, but interestingly enough, civil engineering. You think, well, that's kind of building bridges. That's kind of, you know, getting a bit muddy. And mm-hmm. you know, I wouldn't like to be out there today, like working on a civil engineering site. It's pretty cold here in the UK. Yeah. <laughs> so hats off to all the men and women who are doing that. But you, you get a kind of an image uh, of engineering in one form, but actually there is a lot more to it than that. And I think civil engineering in particular went through a period. In um, certainly, I think at the University of Bristol, where that we're both associated with, they, where there was a shift. Suddenly, there were a lot more women getting involved in in civil engineering, and I think one of the things perhaps that that did that was civil engineering. You know, it became about environmental projects. It became about you know projects which are about giving people good drinking water, giving people a safe habitat. If I'm not saying that 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 in any kind of sexist way, but it was like the image of civil engineering as a subject changed. Changed, yeah. And whether that was something that, that did 
you know, managed to attract, you know, a, a better gender balance, then, then that's totally, you know, it's a good thing. I think also at the same time, I think veterinary science went the other way, but I'm not really <laughs> sure on that. You know, might not have to quote me on that. But I think, to be honest, we nothing changes unless we get in a, a grassroots level and just say to everybody, you can do whatever you want. Right. Yeah. By the way, engineering is cool. Yeah. So please think about having yeah. doing that as no, well. That's, yeah, it's really inspirational. Airbus is um, I'm glad and really great to see that and hear that. Airbus is taking a leading role on that topic because I also I agree with you. It's absolutely crucial that we attack, attack this head on. So just just to finish, I'd like to add um, just a- ask you for some final words of, of advice for our younger listeners who want to uh, make a career in aerospace engineering. We just touched on that a little bit and perhaps a way of doing this at Airbus. How do you best go about <laughs> developing a career at Airbus? I, I think I would say to, to people listening that that one of the things I do in a, in a lecture at, at the University of Bristol to first-year students in Introduction to Aircraft Structures, I show this pictures, which is, it starts off with the Wright brothers in, in December 1903, iconic moment when they first heavier-than-air-powered aircraft. The world changed mm-hmm. on, on, on that December day. And I show them pictures. We talk about the history of how we got from 1903 to today, and I say, look, look at the iconic flight machines there are in this montage of pictures. And you could have stopped at any point, you know, after 20, 30 years increments. And you could say, well, what could we possibly do next? Mm-hmm. And you would have looked back in history and said, well, we kind of, all the shells must be full now. We, we must have the capability to do everything we need. Yet we still go on and produce more things, you know, more inventive flying machines, more economic flying machines, more more spectacular flying machines. I mean, in the 1930s, people might have thought about going to the moon. I was lucky. I grew up in the 1960s, and Apollo became part of everybody's blood. Mm-hmm. You're looking at the first moon landings on the TV, and you go, there's somebody on the moon. The effect that has on... on we cannot stop there. There's, there's, more, there's more to be done in the, in, in the future, and it's not just in the atmosphere of this planet. I mean... The, the generation, I like to think there are some people listening here who are going to be going to Mars. It's your generation that's going to Mars. So please, can you get on with it and do it? Because I want to watch it. I want to enjoy it in the augmented reality that other engineers are going to produce so I can be there with you when you're doing it. Well, that's absolutely, I think, the perfect inspirational note to, to finish, Ian. It's been absolutely a pleasure you, to have you on. It's been absolutely great. So thanks for having the conversation. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Well, if you're anything like me, you can't wait until that vision of landing on Mars becomes a reality. If you want to learn more about the topics that Ian and I discussed, you can find show notes at airspaceengineeringblog.com forward slash podcast. There you will also find more information on our sponsor, the Society for the Advancement of Material and Process Engineering, and the world-leading materials technology conference that SAMP is organizing in Long Beach, California next year. Also make sure to check out the Airbus Flyer Ideas website, where you'll find some truly out-of-the-box thinking from the next generation of young engineers. And just as a quick reminder, if you can spare a minute, I would be super grateful if you could tell me on iTunes how you're liking the show. And with that, thank you very much for listening, and see you next time.